This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Good morning. Welcome to The Breakfast Grill. The doctor is truly in the house and it is with great pleasure to have in the studio Tan Sri Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah, Chairman of UCSI Healthcare Group and also former Director General of Health. As we have a broad-ranging conversation of how he helped steer the country out of the pandemic, the future of healthcare in Malaysia and whether we are ready for the next pandemic. Good morning, Tan Sri. Keeping well? Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me this morning. <laughs> well, let's get a bit personal before we talk about the weighted issues about country's healthcare infrastructure and talk about your retirement. I mean, you announced your retirement from civil service April this year with an illustrious 35-year career in the Ministry of Health. Exactly. When the press interview, you said Rehat Dulu, mm-hmm. uh, which means rest a bit, yeah. but today... You're now a senior breast and endocrine surgeon at Putrajaya Hospital. You're UCSI Healthcare Group Chairperson, University of Cyberjaya Chancellor, Chair of WHO Pandemic Committee and more other committees you chair. Is there something I'm missing about the concept of retirement? Well, I think retirement is a blessing after six months of cooling period. Uh, so it's very exciting. And I think my career just started in the private sector. Uh-huh. So, but the experience that I had uh, in the public sector, I think helps a lot in terms of the planning and, and uh, sharing our experiences uh, with the private sector, especially in the universities. As, and also in private hospitals. Hmm. I'm quite keen to understand whether the motivation has evolved. I mean, when you shift from public to private sector, many say that, you know, we enter this second phase of life, this second mountain. Does your motivation change? Does the drive evolve a bit as you as you take on these new roles and responsibilities? Well, the principle is still the same, just that the focus may be a bit different. But I think we have to work on the principle, a common pathway, hmm. a common target and goals, you know, whether it's a public sector or private sector. But obviously, you need to look into sustainability and etc. So I think the experience that we had in the public sector is very important. And now we are looking into how we can integrate the public and the private sector. Because our health system is a dichotomous healthcare system. And, uh, you know, we do want, I mean, is how can we actually bring these two sectors together? Mm. Although in theory is good, I think I'm looking at the perspective of the country. How can we optimize the resources in terms of the, uh, service, the facilities, uh, in terms of the uh, human resource and etc. Optimize the resources from both sectors. Mm. Now you can see the sectors that, you know, the rich can actually access to treatment in the private sector and also in the public sector. Because if the service is good in the public sector, yeah. they will come in the public sector. Yep. You can't deny them because they are the taxpayers and etc. But the poor have no option. They only have to go to public sector. Now, how do you integrate the two sectors together? I think we have talked about this for years, but the pandemic has actually given us the opportunity to see the integration between the public and private. That's right. Because you've always talked about this all-of-society yes. approach, isn't it? That's that right. I think that came really to the fore mm-hmm. throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see perhaps the relationship between public and private exactly. actually deepen quite a lot there. That's right, yeah. So I think working together, I think a concept, we already have the concept, but to come and work together within public and private sector, the whole government and whole society approach, I think that's important. Mm. So we can optimise the resources for us to control and uh, the pandemic COVID-19, for example. 
So if that can be done, why can't we do it for non-communicable diseases and etc.? So again, we must look into the model of how uh, you know we can actually optimize our healthcare in this country. But do you think there's misgiving and you know lack of trust from the public side when when engaging the private healthcare sector? Do you think there are concerns about profit profiteering right on the private healthcare side? How do you address that? So concern? we need to be, mitigate in terms of uh, you know how can we provide services high impact, good mm. quality, and reasonable cost. It's not cheap, but it's reasonable cost. Mm. And if you compare Malaysia healthcare, the cost and with other countries, I think we are among the much cheaper. Uh, and that's the reason why I think our Malaysian Healthcare Travel Council able to actually attract a lot of uh, you know um, health travellers uh, to Malaysia. One is quality is almost the same, but at least the cost is much cheaper. Mm. Likewise, if you look into our service industry and hotels, our hotels are much cheaper if compared to the other countries. So I think this is our advantage that we can actually and uh, write on and see how best we can enhance it further. Mm. And just building on the earlier reference you made that actually for the healthcare infrastructure has to serve both those who are well-to-do and poor. And, exactly. And just reflecting on your background, I mean... You, you did not have an easy life, right, yep. as a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were born, you Ming Siong, in a poor family in Sungai Pelik. Mm-hmm. You were raised by a single mother in flats in Pudu. You were then adopted by an Ustas. I wonder when you were young, right, was the ambition and goal for you to be a doctor? Well, I started with a very humble beginning. And uh, yeah, many of uh, my friends and even many of uh, the public knows that I'm adopted. So I'm adopted to a Chinese family. That's number one. Mm. And actually, in the news that you read, it's not exactly the truth. Uh, once I've, I mean, adopted, and then uh, there's uh, my mom and dad, adopted mom and dad, mm. uh, split, uh, separated, and then uh, my mom converted when I was still, uh, uh, I think, probably three or four years old. Uh, then I started, you know, being educated, and then uh, in... Uh, in a different culture and adopted uh, by uh, Ustaz uh, to, uh, to, I mean, in in a different environment. Yep. So I mix very well with uh, Chinese, Malay and also Indian. So it makes me more Malaysian actually. So understand the three cultures and also uh, in terms of uh, uh, religion, I also understand all the religion. And this is something that I think... Uh, give me the advantage to understand each culture and region. Empathy. Empathy as well, mm. yeah. Yeah, and this empathy, I guess, was an easy transition then to consider medicine as a profession then? I, I see, you know, those days I'm not sure, you know, there's actually identity crisis. But when looking back, I think there's an advantage because, you know, you are, you, you are able to understand every culture and religion. And that is certainly an advantage in understanding and you can engage with the respective communities well, you know, from all the communities. Uh, that gives me the advantage as a doctor to communicate, to engage uh, and to, and to empathise with them uh, if needed be. 
and I think that is certainly a good experience looking back on the hindsight. It must have been. I mean, I think, you know, what I'm more interested to understand is that shift from being a doctor to actually being a classic civil servant, right? Why, why did you make that shift from being uh, on the ground? Well, many of us uh, do not know that, you know, I wanted once upon a time to be a religious officer or even to be uh. a Mufti, right? Uh, but I went to a uh, Muslim college uh, in College Islam, Klang, and then my uh, ustads actually uh, groomed me. Uh, and then I, I was sent to a, a science stream, you know, for Science One. Hmm. At that point of time, I was I was quite hesitant because I wanted to uh, go to the religious study art stream. But then my ustad said, no, 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 I think we have enough people, uh, you know, <laughs> studying uh, in religious studies. We are short of doctors. I know. I want you to to you know zoom in and focus to be a doctor. So that's the reason why I continue. Is it uh, in uh, that's in the Muslim college. Lah. So until, maybe he has a foresight to see. The, you possibly, know, possibly, possibly that he could yeah. deploy you in other exactly, better ways. That's right, you know? yeah, yeah. But it was very interesting that you decided that okay, you fell in love with the profession, but then decided to take on a managerial position. Right? Was it hard to transition oh, to take on that actually, administrative because, role? Uh, I was offered. At the age of uh, 40, mm. you know, I just came back from Australia uh, about six years. Uh, I mean, I was training uh, uh, as a surgeon. I graduated as a surgeon when I was age of 30 and I did my training in Australia. So, you know, when you come back, you just want to mm. continue to operate uh, and also develop your uh, unit, a breast and endocrine unit. And then I was offered, uh, but I was quite hesitant and then I rejected actually oh. to be the deputy uh, DG at that point of time. Uh, but then I understand that three years later, you know, there's also another vacancy and I was approached again. But I understand that, you know, to run an organisation, when as a news, as a surgeon, I would like to operate all the time. But, you know, as an administrator, at least I can actually look into the needs of the and the hospital bigger fraternity mm. so again i can see top down and bottom up approach sometimes the top do not understand the bottom but when you comes from the bottom you know providing services at the hospital at ground level you can actually understand the situation much better that's right so it's not only top down but it's the bottom up yeah and but the negotiation is that i'm still allowed to practice one day a week uh, <laughs> is for the last uh, as a deputy uh, DG and also run my clinic one day a week. So one day a week for surgery and one day a week, a half day a week for my my clinic. So I've been doing that, doing it for the last And six still doing years. it now? Yes. As a DG for the last 10 years, I was still doing it. Uh, so, so I've been practicing <laughs> and I still continue to um, present cases uh, and also share my experience in conferences. And the big, uh, in 2010, I was invited to give a talk uh, in a British General of Surgery lecture in Birmingham. And uh, 2019, World Congress of Surgery, when I was a DG then. So, which means, you know, I think I try my best to balance, strike a balance between administration as well as in my professional development. So let's fast forward, right? I mean, you're now revered. I mean, many call you this national hero and icon. We won't talk about the numerous titles, honours, recognitions you've received, right? But are you comfortable with this adulation, with this hero worshipping? Does it make you feel, you know, squirm in the seat? Well, being a DG is not about me, actually. So it's not... Uh, it's but more... it's so much high spotlight on you, though. Exactly. But 
I mean, our target is very clear. You know how I mean, basically to come up with a solution uh, to uh, to control and even to contain uh, the infection. So we are trying our best as a surgeon. You know, you have to make a decision and then focus to come up with solutions. Mm. So that is more important rather than the person. So it's not me. It's a teamwork. It's a Ministry of Health and the whole government in involving all the frontliners in other ministries as well. So I think working together is important. It's the key to success. And that's the reason why I always say it's not about me, because I'm just representing the Ministry of Health and the voice of the Ministry of Health. All right, we're going to take a quick break and return with Tansri Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah as we extend our conversation about providing leadership throughout the COVID pandemic. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Welcome back. Joining me in the studio is Tansri Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah, Chairperson of UCSI Health Group and former DG of Health, as we get a sneak peek behind the man that many attribute to steering our country throughout the pandemic. Now, Tansri, let's just talk a bit about return on investment, right? Because as you were navigating throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, do you think the pandemic has clarified the value, the return on investment that the government needs to make in public health? Well, I think uh, we need to leverage on this uh, lesson learned uh, during the pandemic. I think uh, we can actually improve the way we do things differently mm. and how to optimize the resources. Uh, then there are many lessons uh, to learn uh, in this pandemic. I think one of it is how to integrate the public and private sector together. That's number one. Second, to use the IT, you know, IT system. Uh, when you have to manage, uh, you know, uh, big volumes of patients and etc., sometimes it's difficult to do it manually. So IT helps uh, for us to uh, move forward. And I think uh, and engagement, I think this is also very important for us uh, to engage with uh, stakeholders, uh, patients and etc., yeah. and the public, and how to empower the public. And most important is uh, how do we uh, change the behaviour of the public you know, to do the things that, the do's and don'ts, you know, in terms of uh, uh, during the pandemic, for example, you know, how do we lead the public to understand the disease and also uh, they know exactly what to do, what not to do. So really four key things, right? Collaboration that's really broad, private public is one. Mm. Second, really investment in digital. Yes. Three, optimizing our communication and really having a bigger conversation about public health, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you seem to articulate these four key lessons here from the health. Do you see that reflected in budget 2024 and even in the healthcare white papers? Well, I think if you look back, I think at least this year we see some improvement. I mean, thirteen, almost about 13.9% of uh, increment in the budget. Uh, totaling about 5.9 billion, almost to 6 billion, mm-hmm. which is a good start. But I mean, before the pandemic 2019, I retweeted, we are underfunded, understaffed, right? Our hospital. And it always fell on deaf ears. Yes, yes. I think this is the, the real issue. We need to invest more in healthcare. Uh, if you were to look back, if our projection is 6% of GDP for the whole country, at the moment, it's only about 4%. Mm-hmm. 2.1% from uh, public private sector and 2.2% from the public sector. So it's total about 42 4.3%. So in, in our country, we should be investing at least 6%. So 6% means additional 2% from the budget. And 2%, additional 2% will cost us about $60 billion 
instead of 41 billion now. So obviously, I think at least we can plan towards uh, you know the increment of the health budget over a period of time in stages, for example. Mm. So at least this is a good start. This year is a good start. At least there's an increment of uh, a 5.9 billion. Now the fund is one thing. Second is that how do you use this the fund? allocation allocation of the, of the that's fund. right. So I think I mean healthcare is a bottomless pit. And then we need to really look into how do we invest in a healthcare system. Now. Mm. So instead of investing in curative, we need to shift in preventive and the well-being. So reduce the cases rather than increase the facilities and hospital. I mean, we still continue to upgrade some of the facilities. But if you can reduce the cases, for example, then you can reduce the load in our hospital and the clinic. But we seem to struggle, right, in targeting this preventative healthcare well. I mean, a classic example is recently the GEG, the Generational Endgame Bill. We just can't seem to get our act together to get that done, right? I mean, these are critical policy tools that are preventative in nature, but somehow we just can't seem to pass over. Yeah, if you look into the healthcare, it's not only in Ministry of Health. I think, you know, it's the whole sector had to come together. More important for us to transform the healthcare system, we need a strong commitment and political will mm. to do it. So the question is not only from the Ministry of Health, but from other ministries to support. Uh, you know, every sector is a health sector. We know that, you know, health is wealth. And we have seen that during the pandemic, certainly, you know, health is so important. It clarified the return on investment. That's right, yeah. Mm. In the long run, I think how do we invest in healthcare? So I think today, for example, you know, we we need to uh, focus mainly on preventive measures. i just give you a simple example. During the pandemic, every hospital have a trauma OT. During the pandemic, because of the lockdown, we have hardly any trauma cases because of the lockdown. Which means if we were to invest in our road safety, uh, road traffic and safety, you know, guidelines and safety. So perhaps we can actually reduce the trauma cases. Likewise now in preventive. So, you know, invest in terms of uh, like cervical, cervix, cervical cancer. So in terms of uh, uh, vaccination and etc. So I think that can improve in terms of reduce the cancer cases. Mm. So otherwise, uh, there's a good example. Uh, I always quote this. Uh, you know, once upon a time when I was a trainee and I go on call, there was there will be always there will always be a bleeding, you know, from a GI bleeding, upper GI bleeding, etc. So we have to do a procedure under running ulcer, uh, trunchovagotomy, and pyroplasty, and etc. But when they introduce a pin a pill, a proton pump inhibitor. That procedure is really obsolete, and today you hardly see any bleeding from peptic ulcer disease. So one pill, one pill, keep the surgeons away, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so now there's a lot of investment we can do. For example, fully exit uh, now fortification in our food, etc. We can reduce the incidence of neurotube defect and etc. So investment for now in my field, we have multinodal goiters and etc. Mm. Huge goiters. If we invent in uh, invest in iodine fortification, we can reduce actually the cases. I think the most important is how do we reduce the cases 
and then we can actually reduce the cases in our hospital and our clinic. So you make a very interesting point that this healthcare reform is an all-of-government approach, all-of-society yeah, exactly. approach, exactly. right? Yeah. I wonder when people construct this healthcare white paper, right? Are all ministries engaged to make sure that they take these actions in place? Because it clearly requires some cross-ministry engagement to make this work. We have been discussing about the healthcare reform for the last 40 years. Yes. Uh, but we need strong political will and uh, commitment. Now, the white paper was mooted earlier. It's because, you know, every gov- new government comes in. They have their own perspective of how to transform the healthcare. So we need to have a white paper. White paper means white. And then engage with all parties and then table in parliament. Uh, so if we can get the bipartisan support for this healthcare white paper and everybody agrees that we need to transform our healthcare system in this country. And and regardless of the government of the day or, or, or the ministers or mm. health ministers uh, come and go, but more importantly is the white paper is available and continuity so that one government to another will continue to implement what have been agreed upon. So I think we have tabled uh, this in Parliament and then everyone, bipartisan support, agrees to this white paper. But now we have to discuss in detail what is the healthcare transformation? How are we going to transform? You know, in terms of the financing, in terms of the uh, the structure and etc. The system that we need. I think this is where I think the engagement is still ongoing and hopefully that we can see mm. how to optimise the resources, not only in a sector, not only in public sector or private sector, but integrating both sectors. I mean, you talk about resources. I mean, we've had so much conversation about how medical professionals are under so much pressure, a lot of underpaid. I mean, you, you went through this whole period of you know navigating you know potential strikes, uh, issues where you know there's burnout taking place, mental abuse happening, right? How do we, you know, fix really one really critical core position, which is really the, the, the core talent of the health industry, right? Healthcare sector. So I think we need to look into our human resource, uh, very important to look into our human resource, you know, uh, they are the key success of any organisation. I think, uh, and we understand uh, in the public sector, we are uh, short of positions, uh, permanent posts for our doctors. But at least we can actually look into other options. And we have come up with a suggestion that, you know, to allow permanent posts, but not pensionable, but it is under the EPF. So if it's, a, you know, you offer a permanent post under EPF, that perhaps will solve some of the problems that we have. And, and it's important for us to continue to train our doctors, our young doctors, to be specialists in time to come. And uh, most of the private sector, they are not involved in uh, training. Most doctors or specialists in the private sector, once upon a time, they are from public sector. Mm. So this is important. But we are also looking at uh, the option of how can we uh, use the private sector uh, for training or postgraduate training, for example. So we have, uh, you know, uh, encouraged the integration of the training of the specialists in the public sector and also in the private sector to integrate both sectors together as one. Okay, we're going to continue this conversation after the news on this very special extended breakfast grill with Tansri Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah, former DG of Health, as we continue our conversation with him after the news. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. 
Welcome to this extended breakfast grill. Joining me in the studio is the doctor of the moment, Tansri Dr. Nohisham Abdullah, former DG of Health and also chairman of UCSI Healthcare. As we have a broad-ranging conversation about how we navigated out throughout the pandemic. You know, Dr. Tansri, we just had a conversation, you know, throughout the break that actually many of us feel that the pandemic is a very distant memory and yeah. the biggest fear is mm-hmm. that we become complacent. Exactly, yeah. Well, our concern is, uh, you know... At- Every success will leads to complacency, and complacency will leads to failure. Uh, having said that, I think important for us uh, to relook back again and see how best we can learn from this experience and to improve our healthcare system. I think there are four things that we need to do at the moment. How can we enhance our surveillance? Uh, we are talking about genomic surveillance and etc. Second is obviously our health system. And how, you know, how can we continue to strengthen our health system, invest more, and uh, you know, and our health system is um, can adapt. For example, during the pandemic, we have to close down our hospital totally, and that's not good because we neglect a group of patients, yeah. NCDs and etc. Those needed operation all been postponed. Sixty thousand, almost sixty thousand operations been postponed. So. The best is that you have a system that we can continue running parallel uh, during the pandemic. Third is that we need to empower public health measures in the country, meaning not only the Ministry of Health, each individual families, communities know exactly what to do. For example, a simple thing, you have a upper respiratory tract infection, put on a mask, you think you've got a fever, etc. Stay at home, mm. you know, take your own precautionary, precautionary measures. measures. You know, stay away from uh, uh, crowded places and confined spaces, etc. These are all good practices that we need mm. to, uh, pra- uh, uh, you know, perform uh, when we have this uh, uh, situation. And last but not least, I think important for us, uh, you know, to apart from the public health, I think uh, investment in public health is important. Mm. When we return to the norm, and you can see that. Uh, if things are as usual, that means public health is functioning well. Mm. Uh, but sometimes we do not, uh, you know, we forget about the public health mm. uh, people. We only know the doctors, consultants and all <laughs> in the hospital, but not the public health uh, yes. uh, sectors. So I think this is important investment for us uh, and train more people, more specialists in public health. Uh, and last but not least is uh, behavioural change. Uh, this is, uh, the th- uh, we have championed this in the World Health Assembly last year. Uh, in terms of how do we empower our public to do uh, the, the the needful uh, do, uh, the do's and don't, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the, our daily uh, life and uh, living. I mean, you talk about the actions we have to take now, regardless of whether we have a pandemic or not. And I just want to put you in the spot, though, because you are a chair of the Global Committee on Pandemics with exactly. WHO. How, what's the likelihood, right, for us to experience another pandemic in the coming years ahead? And are we ready? Well, that's the reason why I think we're learning from this experience of a pandemic COVID-19 and then to enhance our response. Uh, this committee basically looked into health emergency, prevention, preparedness and response. So certainly our response today will prepare us for the, the future. Uh, but I think we have 194 member states and we need to coordinate the response, align in terms of the things that we do from each country to another. And this is important because, you know, if we have 194 you know, ways of doing things, that will be a haphazard. 
So now in the ministry of health, uh, in the, this committee, we are looking into five areas. Number one is the surveillance, collaborative surveillance. How can we come together uh, and share information, for example? If there's an outbreak in China, we want to know about the virus, the genomic sequence of the virus, so that we can prepare. Mm. Uh, in other countries, can prepare. So this is important collaborative surveillance, uh, including the genomic sequencing, etc. Second is the community protection. How do we protect our community? So it depends on the healthcare system in terms of uh, how do we uh, are we ready our health system to respond to a pandemic. And, all, and the third, we look into the clinical um, scale up in terms of, uh, you know, if there's a need, a uh, search in the cases in the hospital, whether our hospital can, you know, respond and accept, accept more patients. For example, if you have 10 ICU beds, so and when the need is, uh, it arises and then we need to actually in, uh, transform and even convert some of the wards uh, to become the ICU, for example, increase the oxygen uh, supplies and etc. So the re- so this is where you need monitoring mm. of the whole system and utilization helps. For example, you know we know exactly how many patients come to our hospital and then uh, our capacity of hospital in terms of our needs. Uh, for example, uh, the use of our glove, PPE, whether it's adequate or not, etc. So I think you you have uh, a monitoring process ongoing. So this is the improvement of our health system. And this process system, right, as you correctly point out, has to be coordinated exactly. and actually have some alignment across the world because that was clearly a lesson learned throughout the pandemic, isn't it? Some countries decided to do their own thing, exactly. adopted herd immunity. Right. We had also shifts and all that. That's also one of the biggest issues and lessons, right? The yeah. lack of coordination and unity in how we approach these things. Yeah. So I have mentioned earlier uh, surveillance, uh, community uh, protection, and then uh, clinical services mm. to scale up during the pandemic. And then the fourth is uh, countermeasures of vaccine, uh, therapeutic drugs, and as well as uh, the diagnostic. You know, so we can see during the pandemic, the rich country will buy all the vaccine, and the poor countries yeah. have no access. Equity is the issue. How do we address this in a global platform? Last but not least is the cooperation in the emergency response. So we are not talking about outbreak only. We are also looking into a health crisis, for example, wars and etc. How do we provide services uh, to this region? So I think these are the things. Yeah. Initially, during the pandemic, uh, we have two approaches. Uh, herd immunity approach as well as uh, prevention and control approach. Uh, in the Ministry of Health in Malaysia, we have always adapt, uh, adopted uh, prevention and uh, uh, and control approach. We have an Act 342 uh, uh, for this uh, implementation. But when we look into other countries, we have a leeway of six months earlier to learn from others because the outbreak was in other countries. So the do's and don'ts so that we do not repeat the mistakes being done. So in Sweden, for example, they adopted the herd immunity approach to allow the infection. And then the young ones, when they get infected and they recover, they have a natural immunity. So they protect the high-risk group, the elderly and etc. But we do not know about this virus. This is a new virus, you know. Uh, So the lesson learned is that, you know, this virus spread, you know, very fast. And then the fatality is very high, including the young ones. So the mistakes that we see that is we were to use the herd immunity approach, we will end up with fertilities, especially the young ones. Uh, not only the elderly, but also the young ones. 
You articulate it so clearly, but I can remember and reflect during the pandemic, it must be very hard to make sure everybody sings on the same hymn page, isn't it? Because you also got a lot of criticism throughout the pandemic. And also what doesn't help is, honestly, there was this whole change of political leadership. Exactly. I think you you actually served five prime ministers, six ministers of health, right, with multiple political setup and makeup. Mm. Do you think this whole political transition actually made it very hard for you to do your job well? Well, at that period of time, it's not only a health crisis, it is... It was also an economic crisis and political crisis. Managing the political crisis was difficult because we are the centre in terms of in Ministry of Health. We are trying to build trust in the Ministry of Health in terms of engaging with the public, explain all the issues and challenges daily to the public and then try to manage the expectation of the public and to win the public trust. When it's been politicised, that is our issue now in terms of... Uh, uh, Maybe Ministry of Health been attacked, you know, to get to the government. And government is using us to defend against the enemy. So this is the how do you strike that balance? I That's mean, right. it's very challenging during that period of time because it's not database, isn't it? That's the issue. It's not fact based. Yeah. So what we did is actually we need to you know focus and then uh, rely on facts, data, and science, not political uh, you know uh, you know perspective, but but use facts, data and science to guide us out mm. of this situation. But you must get a lot of pressure to open up and, you know, not extend the lockdowns further, right? I'm sure business communities, every member of society were giving you a lot of pressure. How did you hold your nerve and say, no, the answer is that we have to do this because we have to flatten the curve, right? You, I'm sure you had a lot of pressure. Uh, this is, you need to strike that balance, you know, in terms of, you know, when we declare the public health emergency of international concern, we are looking into three areas. Number one, infectivity. It means uh, very high infectivity of this virus. Second is the fertility, very high fertility. And we heard earlier in Iran, in China, uh, people are dropping dead in the streets, on the streets mm. and etc. And last but not least is the economic impact. So how do you strike the balance with life and livelihood, you know, health and economy and also politics, for example? So this is important for us to make sure that if we all can come together as one, and this is why I think we adopted the whole government and whole society approach and engaging with every, uh, everyone uh, and the, in, the, in the public uh, to come together so that we can address this issue and hopefully we can actually transform the healthcare. And, and when we say transforming the healthcare, we will start with individual. You know, how do we change the behaviour of individual, family mm. and group before we look into the Ministry of Health? It's not a responsibility of Ministry of Health alone. It is a responsibility of all of us, actually, uh, in healthcare in this country. That's right. I think we have so much more to cover. But I just want to conclude just one last question to you, right? And let's, it's a hypothetical, right? Right. Let's assume that Dr. Tedros does, you know, not continue on as DG of the World Health Organization. Would you consider that post? No, I think we have to look into the geopolitics in the because there's a lot of uh, uh, the nomination is based on geopolitics. It's not based on professional. Uh, so certainly, I think this is a very challenging post. It's not an easy one. Mm -hmm. uh, we recently had a, a engagement as well as. A, uh, appointment of uh, a regional uh, director of the WHO in the Western Pacific region. 
and uh, I think uh, the region have actually nominated and appointed um, uh, a representative from uh, the Minister of Health from Tonga to take the lead. I think this is something that, uh, you know, is not only from the technical perspective, but also you need to look at the political perspective. Uh, new, uh, geopolitics is important. Mm. Uh, whether we have the support from the region and from the whole uh, globe, for example, whole country, uh, whole uh, uh, world, for example, to for this position. Regardless of whether you take on this position, we would like to all thank you for your service here. On The Breakfast Grill, Tan Sri Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah, former DG of Health, as we unpack how he helped us navigate throughout the pandemic. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.